When I was in seminary, there was this one professor who was considered scary smart. You know the type? He was the kind who always had a book with him wherever he went, which a lot of people do that, but he was reading books no one would want to read, nor could anyone understand if they tried to read them. And the story goes that he was summoned to jury duty. And he thought, well, sitting in a jury pool, I can just read, but I don't really want to serve on a jury. They don't let you read during a trial. So as he was sitting there reading, he heard the two attorneys coming down the row, and they had one question they asked up front. Is there anything that would preclude you from serving on a jury? So he said, well, I'm peripatetic. And they looked at each other and without a word said, uh, you, you can go. <laughs> if you don't know, the word just means you can get around, you can travel. But apparently, these two attorneys didn't want to admit they didn't know the word. And so they just, okay, whatever. I think there are a lot of us who may or may not know the word peripatetic, but very few people, even in churches, know the word incarnation. It's not an everyday word. In this series, last week faith, next week grace, those are words we know. We might need them redefined, but at least we know them. Incarnation's a little bit tricky. Now, in seminary, they will teach you very quickly that you should just think about the menu in the Mexican restaurant. Chili con carne, carne asada, that carne comes from, well, eventually from the Latin, really for flesh. It's the notion that Jesus was God in the flesh, came among us in the flesh, which is really good news, except down through history, it's been a lot of trouble for Christians. It's been troubling. Barbara Brown Taylor, the great Episcopal preacher, tells a story about the time she was invited to be a guest preacher at an Episcopal church, her own tradition, but a small rural congregation in Alabama. She wasn't sure she knew exactly how to get there, so she arrived extra early. And as it turns out, she got there so early, it was just her and one other lady. This lady was polishing the silver that would be used for communion. And as Barbara describes her, she herself was polished. Not a hair out of place, manicured nails, expensive clothes, and they exchanged pleasantries, and the woman went back to polishing, and Barbara thought she would look around. There were beautiful windows and pews, but behind the altar was a gorgeous life-size mural of Jesus. There were Roman soldiers in it who were asleep. They were supposed to be guarding the tomb, but Jesus was springing out of the tomb, looking as limber as a ballet dancer, and except for the white cloth around his waist, completely naked. And Barbara had never seen so much skin of Jesus in church. And she was looking at it when the woman said, it's beautiful, isn't it? And that should have just been a yes. But instead, Barbara couldn't help herself. She said, I know, but can you believe how much skin is showing? And he, he just looks amazing. And he, there's no body hair, smooth as a peach. And the woman just <laughs> almost had a fit. You're talking about Jesus' skin in church. But she actually never said a word. She just froze in terror. That woman is not alone. Down through the history of the Christian church, people have been 
uncomfortable with the fleshiness of Jesus. They wanted him to be real, but not really real, just kind of real, kind of human. And there's a teaching, and you actually know this word even though you might not recognize it right off. It's the word Gnostic with a silent G in the front. Now, you know the opposite, agnostic, no knowledge. Some people say, oh, I'm agnostic, no knowledge. Well, Gnostic means knowledge. There was this group of Gnostics who said, we know the real truth about God. And they had a whole theology, but one piece of it was this. Well, Jesus looked like a human, and he looked like he had flesh, but didn't really have flesh. I mean, sort of flesh, not real flesh, not like your flesh. The Gnostics said, if Jesus walked on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he would make no footprints. Because, well, he's the Son of God, and gods don't make footprints. Something similar happens in Christian artwork down through the centuries. You know one of the most common themes is Madonna and Child. The Nelson has a bunch. Every museum has a bunch. Mary and the baby Jesus. Except a lot of times, he doesn't look like a baby, right? He's beatific. He looks like a miniature adult. But every once in a while, you'll see an artist who was brave enough to make him look like a baby and position him in such a way that he had a penis. Well, the popes and the cardinals who commissioned those works were not impressed. A lot of them had it covered over. It's too much skin, too real. It was too scandalous. But the artists were saying, well, if he's really human, this is what humans are like. And the Gospel of John agrees. The Gospel of John starts by calling him the Word. He was the Word in the beginning and was God. But it doesn't leave it as the Word. He says the Word became flesh. And he dwelt among us. Or in the Greek, he, he pitched his tent right here with us. Or as one translation puts it, he moved into the neighborhood. You know... In his flesh and bones, he moved into the neighborhood. And that's the way the Gospel of John tells it. After this, he'll go down to the Sea of Galilee, where I promise you he made footprints in the sand. And he walks up to some real fishermen who have real boats and real fish. And there's real stink in the air. And he says, follow me. And they do. And they make footprints right behind his. And they watch him. And they march behind him. And he goes to a wedding. A real wedding where there's a real bride and groom and there's real wine except they run out and he turns the water into real wine because he's real. And he goes to sick beds where people can't even walk and he heals them and they stand up on those legs and they start to make footprints too. And then he goes to hungry people. Not, not metaphorically hungry. None of this food for thought nonsense. These are people who are starving. Their stomachs are growling, if not distended. And he feeds them with real bread, real fish, with his very real hands. But some people have found this a little bit troubling. And then John says, and he went to a funeral. 
which is about as real as it gets. You know, you remember, it was his friend Lazarus. Lived with his sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus gets there, and he's dead. And then comes that shortest verse in all the Bible, Jesus wept. I had a professor in seminary who said, I don't like that translation, because weeping sounds like not real. It doesn't sound human, you know? It makes him Gnostic. This professor said, how about, and Jesus cried, bawled his eyes out that his friend was dead. Scholars suggest that, yes, he's probably sad that his friend is dead, but it's possible he's crying because the sisters don't get it yet. Remember, they said, Lord, if you'd been here, this, he didn't have to die. But Jesus is there and raises Lazarus from the dead. Because incarnation is not just about God coming in flesh, but our flesh. God takes on flesh and says, flesh is good and flesh is meant to live. Come out of there, Lazarus. A lot of people are uncomfortable with incarnation. But the Gnostics, this is the thing about Gnostics, and they're not just ancient, they're still Gnostics. They don't even know it, but they're Gnostics. The, the Gnostics, they have this kind of notion of, well, things of the spirit are real. You know, like praying and fasting, but, but stuff that you can hold, that, that's not good stuff. You know, that, that's tainted. Stuff of the flesh. If you want to know what the incarnation is about, it says, if you think the world is a rotten place, that sex is bad, that people are bad, that everything is going to hell in a handbasket, think again. The incarnation says that what happened at creation, that everything is good, is affirmed again, even flesh. And God comes in the flesh. When I taught at the seminary, probably the most popular course was an elective where we read short stories. You got credit for reading short stories. One of them is kind of what I would call the churchy version of an episode of the Twilight Zone. It's just surreal. You know, it needs that soundtrack doo -doo -doo -doo, going on in the background. Called City of Churches, and this woman named Celia has moved to this town, and she's being shown around by the real estate agent, Mr. Phillips, except every building. That's all there is, is churches. Oh, Methodist, Episcopal, Pentecost, you name it, all just churches, churches, churches. And some of them are congregations, and some of them double as dry cleaners and grocery stores. That's all there is, and she just can't get over it. Now, the name of the town is somewhat telling. It's, it's Prester. And it, you get the feeling it just presses in upon people, all of these churches. And it's kind of spooky. She tells him that she wants to open a rental car business. He says, well, it's going to have to be in a church. And then he says, but I don't know why anybody would want to rent a car, because that would imply they want to leave Prester. And we don't really like people leaving. And that, that's when you can hear that soundtrack, right, from the Twilight Zone. And then he shows her an apartment. Happens to be in the belfry of a church. Big old bells. And, and he says, now when those go off, you're going to want to watch out. You can get killed by those. And, and she just can't believe this. She says, well, I'm not really religious. And he says, oh, you will be. 
you will be. And finally, when she can take no more, she's, she threatens it with the only thing she can. She says, I'll dream things, sexual things. You won't like it. And he says, you are ours. And that's how the story ends. It is very haunting. And two scholars, two scholars suggest that that has in some ways become the defining narrative of Christianity down through the years. Judgment, sin, pressing in, hanging on, controlling, all about death and sin. They suggest there's an alternative, and it was the original one. These two women, they went throughout Italy visiting ancient churches to look at the ancient artwork. By the way, two years from now, we're going to do that. We're going to take a tour of Rome and Florence doing Bible and art. They went to these churches to look at the earliest pictures of Christian art to see what was the message that Christians took. You know, in the glass, in the painted dome ceilings. And what they discovered was not one image of the crucified Jesus. Not one. Instead, the resurrected Jesus stands in a field surrounded by deer who are grazing and sheep and beautiful trees and blue sky and sunshine and flowers blooming. And the women, these two women, they suggest that what we did is we took the story of good creation and incarnation and we traded it in for death and despair. And if that's the case, what a tragic loss. When we were in Israel, every night after supper, we would find a little meeting room in the hotel and we would do a debrief. We would say, okay, can you name even all the places we went today? And do you remember this? And does this make sense? And do you have any questions? But we also started with a question. We asked, where did you see God today? It's an incarnation question. I remember the day I not only asked the question, but gave my answer almost right away. We had been to Jerusalem. That day we had gone up near the Dome of the Rock, which is a very tense place. Jews, Muslims, Christians all have a stake, and it's, it's tense. There's security there. It's pretty intense. You can go around, go to the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. But it was outside of the security that I had my sighting. We were making our way through a sea of people, and there was this Jewish family there to celebrate their son's bar mitzvah. He was turning 13, becoming a son of the commandment, and they were on top of the world. He had on his yarmulke, the men had on theirs, the women were there, the mother, the grandmother, the sisters, the father, the grandfather. They had a videographer who was filming it all and they'd hired a musician and the music was delightful and they were all waiting their turn to dance with the boy. And the smiles on their faces, have you ever smiled so hard your cheeks hurt? That's what they were doing. There was so much joy and life the incarnation is not just about Jesus' flesh. It's about ours. And in my dictionary, from now on, next to the word incarnation, is the picture of that Jewish family. You, you, you got your own dictionary. 
And now you know the word incarnation. So what is going to be the picture you put next to it? 